hello. Your QL fandom uncle and auntie are here with giant sunglasses, brown liquor in a flask, a folded $5 bill to slip into your hand when nobody's looking, lukewarm takes, occasional rides on the discourse, deep dives into artistry and industry, and most importantly, simping. Lots of simping. I'm Ben. I'm Nini. And this is The Conversation. About once a season, we plan to swan in and shoot the shit on faves, flops, and trends that we've been noticing in the BL, GL, or QL industry. Between seasons, you can find us typing way too many words on Tumblr. Hey guys, my name is Dave. I'm your new favorite BLB asterisk TCH, and I'm here to introduce Nini and Ben, who don't really need any introduction, but I'm an extra bitch, so that's why I'm here. They're giving out awards, they're shading shows, they're uplifting some shows, but mostly shade. So, welcome, tune in, have fun, and I'll see you guys in the episode. It's going to be a lot of me, so be prepared. Like, it's a lot. Bye, guys. We have our first guest on the show, <laughs> not for the last time, because we had so much fun with David. David's going to be back. Ben, what are we talking about? This is a lanyap. So the lanyap, as always, is going to be the bits that just didn't fit into the format of the other episodes thematically or in a way that we thought was necessarily interesting. So we also figured out that Spotify has a question and answer tool and a commenting section. So please use it. We're having a lot of fun with it. We're going to answer some questions from some friends of ours, one old, one new. We're going to talk about Nini catching up on She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat remotes of Punduk 304, as well as my only 12%. Nini and I are going to stare into the abyss and scream about the eldritch horror that was the shipper. We're going to promise you all some things for the future. We're going to talk about a very complicated show in me, my husband, and my husband's boyfriend. And then finally, with David's very specific presence here, we're going to unpack the entire spring season and generally kiki for a bit. It's delightful. Y'all are going to have a lot of fun. See you in the episode. On to the talk nice to us section. Some of you lovely listeners, we still have not figured out what we want to call you. Please chime in and let us know. Have sent us a couple of questions. One from an old friend of mine on Tumblr, and one from a new friend of the show. Nini, please, take us into the questions. Okay, so the first question is from CTLUAG, and they write, I am curious how and why you two started watching QL, what your first impressions were, and how they might have changed over time and after starting a podcast about it. So, Ben, how would you answer that question? As a known homosexual and amateur cinephile, (laughs) I was bored and stressed with Western queer cinema when I discovered BL. Sodas comes out in 2016. I was 
desperate for a fresh infusion of queer cinema. There was a huge dearth of content happening in the 2010s. I really like queer stories, and I really like queer people getting to have fun and have a good time. And one of the things that stood out about Sawdust that felt fresh at the time was how forthright Kong Pop was. I also liked that it felt like it was giving a commentary on its own society at the time. And I was basically hooked on QL from that point on. One, there was just a whole lot more of it. Even with the small amount of content we had in 2016, 2017, 2018, there was more time spent with those shows than like all of the queer movies I watched in that year from the West. That's why I'm here. And then I met Nini and she was like, I want to talk about the shows and I want to do a podcast. And I was like, well, let's not think about it. Let's just do it. Now we're here. What about you? We talked about some of this stuff in our very first intro episode. I have been around fandom for a really long time. I have been familiar with the concept of BL. Sometime around the end of 2020 or beginning of 2021, some edit of I Told Sunset About You showed up on my YouTube. And I was desperate to find it. Back then, it wasn't easily findable. And so in trying to find it, I cycled through Life Senjuno Bakura, Gaia Pelicula, and Where Your Eyes Linger before I found I Told Sunset About You, finally. So I got here at the beginning of 2021, and I just started devouring what I could find. And then, yeah, met Ben on the tumblers and i said to ben hey ben you write nice about things i want to do a podcast because i want to do deep dives into some of this stuff and ben said bet and here we are in terms of how my impressions of ql have changed over time and after starting this podcast i am familiar with the rhythms of some of this media now and so things that probably would have irked me at the beginning don't irk me anymore I enjoy them I think I watch the shows different now when I'm watching I'm always thinking about oh I wonder what Ben's gonna say about this which is fun because usually I'm spot on how about you Ben how have your thoughts about BL QL GL and fandom changed since starting the podcast one of the useful bits about the podcast versus say blogging and essay writing is the conversation itself forces me to think differently about the shows like i don't come into the podcast recordings with a bunch of like scripts written out for what I want to talk about. I sometimes give us questions to focus on that I think will get us into the meat of what that particular project was trying to dig into. But it's talking with each other, and then it's the discussions with other people that really elevate the entire experience for me. I think what I've enjoyed the most about the podcast is I feel like the shows are not one-and-done 
anymore. I feel like I'm exiting the very sort of masculine style of fandom engagement, which is mostly watching, memorizing, cataloging. And I'm very much enjoying the transformative part of fandom where we talk about the shows, unpack them. I find myself being significantly more engaged than I was previously. And it makes me a little more picky about what I watch. Like if I know I'm not going to talk about the show with you, I'm far more likely to just dismiss the show. It's true. There are some times where I'm just like, Oh God. I mean, if Ben's going to watch this, I guess I'm going to have to watch it too. Doing the show has been really great from that regard and that I have watched things that I would have originally dismissed because of Ben. Sometimes I don't love them, but most of the time when Ben says you should watch this, I find it really worthy. My name is not the point, writes. How is your balance with consuming a piece of media and consuming the meta around it? Have you had it happen that the meta around it, reading up on things, completely changed your mind on a series? Ben, has reading meta ever changed your mind about something that you watched? The simple answer is yes. The complex answer is no. None of us are immune to receiving new inputs from other people. And people read things differently from me. I do find value in other people's perspectives. I like understanding where people are writing from. But it's very rare that somebody saw something in a show that was so groundbreaking that I also didn't see it in the first place. The big beats of the story are rarely something that I missed while participating along the way. We're all pretty smart, and the shows are rarely trying to trick us. So it's very rare that like somebody's like, aha, it was the butler in the kitchen with the candlestick. And I'm like, how did you predict that? How I prefer to engage with the matter doesn't lead a lot of the time to me changing my mind about a show, but it has happened that I have been persuaded, not out of my particular read, but more into seeing another read as valid. In my head, I can hold two ideas. So I can be like, well, this thing, I read it this way. This person read it that way. I think both of those things can be happening at the same time. I don't feel like my read is exclusive to every other read. It's fun to talk to people about these things. I'm with Ben. A lot of the enjoyment in these shows, other than watching some of the shows themselves, not all, is in talking to people about the shows and finding out where their perspectives are coming from and seeing where our perspectives intersect and where they might run parallel and where they might conflict, but then how that conflict may not be a conflict at all. It's the twisty intellectual side of things that I really enjoy. And then also just the emotional side, having those conversations, getting to know people through their experience of media and my experience of media. I find that incredibly fun and rewarding. It's one of the reasons that I do the podcast with Ben. So for me, the answer is yes, 
sometimes my mind is changed by meta, but more often than not, my thinking is expanded, not changed by taking in meta. Expanded is a good way to describe it. I do think most shows that are good benefit from really invested people with the ability to communicate their thoughts, sharing them determinedly week in and week out. I'm a big fan of meta, basically. Keep writing. If you listen to us, keep writing. We don't get to make friends with people if you guys are just lurking. Please write. Write on Tumblr. Write on your blogs. Write to us. Whatever you do, just keep writing. We want to hear what you're thinking about the shows. This is the Spring Catch-Up Corner. We've got a doozy of one for you guys to round out the end of this. But we're going to start with a few things that I caught up on in the spring Mostly because Ben would not shut up about them. (laughs) It's true, though. (laughs) So in the spring, I watched She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat in Japanese. Sukuritai ona to tabetai ona. Then Roommates of Poonduck, 304, and My Only 12%. Since Ben is breaking up with new this season i'm gonna start with my only 12 percent. okay i thought we were gonna have fun first with like she loves to cook and she loves to eat it's like directly into my only 12 percent. and another thing smack <laughs> <laughs> we always go from worst to first but we're ending this particular catch-up with the worst because of what it is man i'm just gonna go with my only 12 percent We don't, I think, need to do, like, the reminder to everybody about what My Only 12% is. You talked about it in the Vibe Awards. Y'all should go back and listen to that episode. I'm not exactly sure which episode it is, but I will probably put it in the show description. So, I watched it. (laughs) And, okay. (laughs) I'm going to be real, real with you, okay? Okay. I cannot say that I liked My Only 12%. But I also cannot say that I disliked my only 12%. There were moments to my only 12% that I did like, but like the first two thirds of the show, I just found incredibly frustrating. I am not really a Kuhart fan as an actor. Actually, let me take that back. Yeah, that's right. You better correct yourself. I think Kuhart is talented. I would like to see him work with somebody else because he has only worked with New. And I think he and New bring out the worst in each other in the director-actor relationship. I think that occasionally they reach certain heights, but I think that working together, they lean on some old techniques. They lean on things that they're accustomed to doing with each other. And it doesn't work for me. One of the things I would like to see Kuhart do is play older. And New always has him play younger. And in this particularly, he plays really young. And the effect of it is unsettling for me. Even when they age him up a little bit, 
the cat slide away from the acting he was doing earlier in the show when he was playing like 15, 16. And it's just hard for me to recalibrate once they age him up. The things I do like about the show. I like how Cake and you were just, they were just like that the whole time from like the day they were born, I guess. The first day that they were ever put in a crib together, they were just like that. I mean, everybody else more or less knew what it was and how they felt about each other, but nobody forced them to figure it out or forced them to explain it or anything like that. They just let them figure it out for themselves. I liked the realization part of things. I did like that scene where you is watching Love of Siam, which is something else that I have to put on my catch-up list. And you see the moment when he understands something about himself. I too am a person who has light bulb moments watching media. So I am a fan of characters who work things out by having like a media moment. I like that the two of them were just always connected and they figured out for themselves how they felt. I liked the fight that they had in episode 12 when everything sort of comes to a head because you knows how he feels, Cake knows how he feels, but neither of them is really talking to each other about it. They're just trying to fall back into their old patterns without laying on the table what the feelings are. And of course, it becomes an issue and they have a fight about it because cake is jealous this is the kind of jealousy i like where things are unsettled and one character is like i cannot hold in anymore how i feel i am upset about this thing that you're doing or this person that you're talking to and the reason for that is because i feel this way about you and the other character is like well fucking finally So I did like their fight. I thought that Kuhart was very good in their fight. I liked Santa and his connection with him in the fight. I always like to see a good fight between the two main characters when something has been building up for a while. It was really good. One of the other scenes that was really good was their first time scene. The way that it happened was very gentle. It was very matter-of-fact almost. It wasn't like a big planned romantic thing. It just kind of happened because they were just there and vibing. I like that. But this show felt like new. And not (laughs) in the good way. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) It felt like classic New It felt like New doing... Make it right. It felt like Nusawaj in the parts of Until We Meet Again that pissed me off. There's like a lot of minutiae, stuff that's happening around the characters that's not really important to the narrative or the character building. It's just a bunch of stuff that's happening and he just insists on showing it in detail. There's way too many side characters. They drag out the main story. Like it takes 12 episodes. 12 or 14 episodes for Cake and you to get to the point where they can even have the conversation. And then there's like some weird blushing maiden shit, which I never like. And then the thing that New always does, which is at the last minute, brings out some left field bullshit out of nowhere. 
that has absolutely no relation to anything else and just kind of stops the story dead in its tracks. In this instance, it's Eu's mom is dying randomly all of a sudden because their dad used to smoke when he lived with them. Their dad hasn't lived with them for like, what, over a decade? So their mom has third-hand smoke cancer. It's just out of nowhere. I can't understand why it's there. So basically, I didn't dislike it, but I didn't like the show either. If I had to give it a score, I would probably give it a six. It's okay. Harsh. <laughs> it's new Watch on his new Watch bullshit. That's going to be a six for me. Well... I'm glad you at least humored me and watched it. I feel differently now that New has irritated me twice in the last couple of months. First with Double Savage and then with a boss and a babe. That being said, I hope that someday he earns the moments he really wants to hit. Because like what he's trying to do is actually really interesting. Like, Two best friends who've been in love with each other in one way, shape, or form their entire lives, and it takes them over 20 years to find an alignment that works for them. I'm into that. Listen, new go new. And I don't have to put up with it anymore. That's honestly one of the most unexpected takeaways of this whole season for us, was realizing that I don't think I like new Siwash anymore. I'm not mad at him. I just feel a little bit sad because he reminds me of a lot of guys who I knew when I was in college who mean really well. They just don't really know people or how to interact with them. That's how a lot of news stuff feels. Particularly his whole thing with revealing context after someone has really fucked up something. Because that's how he gets things. Like he fucks up something and likely somebody yelled at him and explained it to him. He was like, oh, damn. And he wrote it down in his journal. And then he turned it into one of his scenes in his shows. I think we've talked enough about Nisawaj. We talked about Nisawaj literally the entire season. I am over him. Let's move on. Very well. The second thing that I watched, and this one I actually quite liked, I watched Roommates of Poong Duck 304. This was actually pretty good it was a solid little workplace drama out of korea i quite liked the way that they balanced out the boss and employee relationship by having them flip it at home and be landlord and renter i always like when these boss subordinate relationships have some kind of other power dynamic going on next to it. I really liked the characters. I thought they were fun. Watching Holland play like <laughs> a scamming ass down dirty. Like he's supposed to be his friend, but he's just stealing from him. Let's just be real. It was delightful in certain ways, but it was also heartbreaking because watching Jayun get scammed and taken advantage of by not just Holland, who I can't remember the character's name, even though I liked the show, <laughs> but watching him get scammed by all his friends, it was just really hard. 
I kind of was like, oh, baby, you need to you need to be more careful about who you let into your life. But yeah, I enjoyed this. I really enjoyed this. I thought that the work stuff was really integrated well into the romantic story and vice versa. For essentially a rom-com setup, it was quite realistic and quite fun. Yeah, I had a good time with this. I really liked this show a lot, and I feel like this show is underrated. I agree with you. I think this is one of the rare KBLs that understands how much time they have exactly and what they want to do with that time. I think they balance the relationships in a way that makes it fun, and it's not just one person getting picked on by the other the whole time. And, like, the only thing that really I don't like in the show is the same thing I usually don't like with the Korean stuff is the way they handle alcohol in the shows. That usually makes me uncomfortable. Seo Jae-yoon, I don't like the way he drinks. But given the friends he has, I guess I'll let him have it. Whew, listen. His friends are trash. Throw the friends away. Throw all the friends away. My God, the other friend who is basically, like, in an MLM and keeps making him buy shit. Now, that was gross. What was the name that he had for him on his phone? I don't know, but I remember being, like, really embarrassed about it. Like, it was basically, like, fool or... Yeah, it was something like that. It was really mean. It was basically something that implied, like, he was just somebody that this guy was taking advantage of. Like, it basically felt like he called him Chump and put him in his phone as that. Yeah, and it was ugly, but it was part of a character arc for Jayan as well. To understand that he deserved better than these friends who would use him like this. And I did like that. It's a solid little show. Very enjoyable. I recommend it to people. I I liked it. So today of all the days, the day we're recording, we got the news that there is going to be a second season of this. She Loves to Cook. And she loves to eat. I'm so fucking relieved. (laughs) I really am. I'll let you talk first, but my goodness, am I relieved that we're getting a season two? (laughs) So back in the Vibe Awards, when we were talking about the GLs of the air, Ben laid this one out as one of the ones that he really enjoyed. He called it the lesbian, what did you eat yesterday? And being a great fan of What Did You Eat Yesterday, I was like, okay, bet. I will definitely watch this at some point. So I found myself with some time and I cranked open the old computer machine and I decided I'm going to watch She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat. And oh my God, how lovely. It's so lovely. I love this show. I love it so much. Watching this gentle kind of slow gravitation between Nomoto and Kasuga, I smiled the entire time. It was so lovely. Lovely is the word that just comes to mind when I think about it. And then Kasuga talking about how she has never felt accepted or understood Nomoto starting to understand in herself how she's always felt separate from everybody. And then Nomoto watching Kasuga eat every day, basically. And those sessions, them having dinner, becoming more and more sexual. 
the look on Nomoto's face when she watches Kasuga Ik becoming more and more mouth open kind of this is hot kind of thing and her not even realizing that that's what's happening to her that she is becoming sexually attracted to Kasuga and particularly to watching Kasuga eat oh god love it love it love it love it and then as the show goes on she starts to acknowledge and accept the fact that she's attracted to Kasuga that she's sexually attracted to Kasuga at the point in time that the story ends in season one no I can say that in season one I remember thinking oh my god it's not finished I need so much more of this and that's why I'm so fucking relieved it ends when they're really starting to adjust their relationship from friends to a romantic relationship so we are getting a second season of this of 20 episodes next year in 2024 and i personally cannot wait i love that all the japanese shit that i really glommed on to in the last few months are all getting sequels so there was the utsukushi kare sequel first then we found out earlier that we're getting a second season of what did you eat yesterday and now she loves to cook and she loves to eat I am very glad that I took your recommendation on two-thirds of this list. (laughs) Shade. (laughs) On all of it. There was stuff to hold on to in my only 12%. The totality of it just wasn't for me. So I'm glad that I watched all three of these. But of the three, my absolute favorite thing that you recommended that I watch is She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat. We've talked about the lovely, fun things, and now it's time to descend into hell. Last time we left you all, Niani and I decided that we would watch The Shipper from 2020 and report back to you all, because we liked a lot of the folks involved and thought it would be really interesting to give a show that we knew had had some complicated responses when it first aired a genuine watch. Well... We've had the opportunity to watch it, and we just finished it, and we have a lot to say. So before we get into our immediate reactions, the simple breakdown of The Shipper is that it is a high school setting show in which two girls are writing sexy fic about two older boys at their school that they love and ship. This eventually leads to some kerfuffles in their school... Our protagonist Pan ends up riding with one of the boys home one night. They get into a car crash, killing both of them. In the afterlife, they meet the god of death, who is played by Jenny Panhan. They sass Jenny a bit. She mushes their faces and sends them back to Earth, but accidentally switches their bodies. And then Pan has to live as Kim, the boy that she's been viewing as part of her ship for a long time, clearly, for some time. She realized she doesn't exactly know him that well, and then starts to reevaluate how she's always perceived him. A lot of other things happen. There are some ideas that are half-baked in this, and it's very clear that this show was fighting a thematic war within the writer's room itself. Quite frankly, it left me and Nini both dissatisfied and deeply disturbed 
to put it mildly. So before I hand it over to Nini, I just want to say real quick, this is the first time in MDL history that I think I'll be giving a show a one. So, Nini, we just finished The Shipper. How are you feeling? I'm going to let MDL user Jaraba speak for me. And I quote, I found the series so intensely disagreeable that my feelings of shock and unease will probably stay with me a long time whenever I think of The Shipper. End quote. I think that says it all. Disagreeable is really such an accurate term. This just reiterates to me that sometimes when we both have a gut feeling about something, we should trust that because we both had a gut feeling that we would not like this show, which is why we never watched it. And now having watched it, I think we were both correct. I feel so validated in my decision in 2020. I took one look at that show and I said, hell to the no. And I wish we hadn't been curious and gone back. They say curiosity killed a cat. Well, I feel like a dead kitty right now. Because what was that? (sighs) Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to actually formulate some sentences that are descriptive and helpful in order to lay out why I never want to think about the show again after we finish recording this. Getting into some specifics about what may have happened along the way here, there were some interesting ideas presented early in the show that the people who ship people don't really know the people involved that they have a false notion of them based upon surface details and the fictional things they've created about them. There's an interesting idea in this, particularly as it pertains to shipping real people who exist with each other, as opposed to, say, fictional characters. Early on, the show really said something special with Pan realizing she didn't actually know who Kim was when she was forced to live as him, because she thought she knew who he was. And I made the joke when we were watching like the first episode, like that, you know, he's just a hole to her. I didn't realize that that's what the theme of the show was going to be. Like, spoilers for the end of the shipper. Only one of them survives Jenny mushing them in the face. First is apparently too weak, and Perking is so much stronger. And so Perking gets to live as first character for a while. Eventually, one of their bodies has to go. And they make the decision for Pan to keep her body and for Kim, first character, to die. How we get there is a huge mess. And by the time it finished, the show read extremely homophobic and lesbophobic to Nini and myself. Oh, throwing transphobic. And transphobic. I'll let you take on that portion. For me, one of the things that was kind of interesting introduced along the way was that they were shipping two boys together because maybe they picked up on the homosocial tension between them. And what we learn along the way is that these boys actually did have a homoromantic relationship brewing between them, but it was nothing like anything that these girls had really imagined. I don't think I'd given much thought to the depths of the feelings between these two boys. 
And what we end up learning about the actual relationship between Kim and Wei, the two boys that they're shipping, played by First Canapon and Fluke Pusit, respectively, ends up being fairly compelling. And I was deeply invested in what they might have done with those boys' dynamic, particularly if we'd have gotten to see who Kim actually was. But what ends up happening along the way that ends up frustrating me is critical moments that should have belonged to two gay boys never get to happen for them. And what happens because the the narrative chooses to have the Kim character be dead the whole time, it makes all of Wei's expressed feelings for Kim, particularly after the accident, all feel super unrequited. I'm not opposed to exploring queer grief. But I don't like the way it's done here. It feels cheap. I'm going to let Nini get into the specifics of this because she said it multiple times when we were watching this. This show wants to have its cake and eat it too. It wants to give a stern lesson about how deeply out of touch shipping is while also feeding shipping the whole time and ends up kind of damning itself along the way because we never actually really meet Kim and he's dead at the end and so all he is is what everyone else has projected onto him this show for like maybe six or seven episodes tiptoes up to several points it almost makes a series of points as ben mentioned about shipping about the experience of fandom about who we think fans are and who they might actually be. It almost makes a point about how many queer women are in fandom and women discovering their queerness through fandom. It almost makes a point about transgender people and the idea of the way that we present to the world maybe not being who we are inside. It tiptoes up to all of these points and in the end touches none of them. The front half of this is intensely frustrating. And then the back half is just actively offensive. It just, I can't even, oh my God, actively offensive. The shift happens when we realize that there is this weird, ugly, fake relationship that is fake on one side but very real on the other happening between Kim and one of the teachers. That's when the show really started going off the rails for me. The whole thing with Kim and the teacher is when I started feeling deeply uncomfortable. I started feeling gross. I didn't understand why this is the way that the show was going what they were trying to say with the storyline i still don't know at the end of the show what they're trying to say with that storyline other than i guess they're trying to tell you that the actual kim was not a good person but then why have him be essentially the victim of a predator it's really hard for us to give you guys the necessary context for some of these things uh, the simple overview is when pan accidentally finds herself in kim's body 
she learns along the way that instead of being like the star academic student, he's actually an academic cheater, that he's involved in a secret relationship with one of the stern teachers, and he uses that relationship to get answers to the tests. This upsets Pan because her image of Kim as the star student and badass is ruined. Eventually, she learns that the reason why Kim was manipulating this teacher and involved in this relationship with her to get these tests was because he was helping Wei study so that Wei could get out of an abusive situation in his house with his dad by succeeding at school properly because Wei gets into fights too much. We don't really return to the whole thing there because all we get is a teacher with very juvenile-centric kinks projecting them onto a star student. It just left both of us, when we watched it, feeling super weird about it. And it doesn't really go anywhere. They're just like, at the end, she's like, she's moved on to an age-appropriate man now, I guess. Like, good for her? I guess Kim's death was the necessary catalyst for her to stop trying to hook up with one of her students it's so gross and it's the pivot after which most of what happens feels gross to me and there are a hundred different things that they're trying to do none of them lands it feels like the show wants to have its cake and eat it too in a lot of ways I haven't even started to get into what they did with the character of Soda Soda is Pan's best friend, who she writes to fic with, who is her ride or die. The implication of the show is that Soda and Pan are kind of in love with each other, particularly that Soda is in love with Pan. But that, again, goes nowhere. In the end, they randomly put both Pan and Soda with boys. A lot of things just don't make any damn sense in this show. It's frustrating because the show comes close constantly to a good point like it almost makes the point that shippers know nothing about the people that they're shipping but then it never really gives us like an interior understanding of who kim actually was we only know him through what everybody else is getting out of knowing him that's almost an interesting point but the big problem i feel with the show is that i feel like this show is the most intellectually disturbing and manipulative show that we've ever experienced I don't think the show ever really lands on a real feeling it wants to go for. And so you're kind of left floundering. I really don't like this particular project. And it's really frustrating because there's a lot of people I really liked in it. Individual pieces of the show on their own could be some really cool moments. Like I think Fluke plays a kind of himbo, badass-type jock character really well. Like, he plays way super well as a guy who is not the greatest at school, doesn't really have, like, a refined understanding of human connection, but knows who's important to him and knows who he wants to be with and knows not to mislead other people along the way. And it's really frustrating to see a gay character like Wei be constantly emotionally abused by this narrative. The frustration that arises for me as I watch this, particularly as it pertains to Wei, is 
he already knows that he has feelings for Kim. And over the course of interacting with Pan, because Pan in some ways softens Kim because she's less standoffish than he is, Wei decides to confess his feelings to Kim. This pissed me off in episode nine because I've been a gay boy confessing from the closet to someone before. It is the most terrifying thing that has ever happened to me in my life. And I was so disgusted with this show because they gave one of the most intense things that you can do as a gay man with another boy to a fucking shipper who never really respected who they were as people. I hate that with all of the fires that burn in my soul. And it never really gets better from there. Let me give you an example of a direction that the show was going in that it then undercut. So one of the actual good story arcs in the show, at the beginning of the show, Wei is in a relationship with Fu's character, Ping Ping. Ping Ping is the school's queen bee, and she is out here like putting out this general idea that she and Wei are in this hot and heavy thing. Meanwhile, Wei has never really touched her. They spend all their time together staring at their phones and occasionally talking to each other. You can see where there is some affection there between them, but Wei quickly, I guess for the narrative, realizes how he feels about Kim, and he's very open immediately about talking to Ping Ping about it and being like, look, I am in love with somebody else. The way that Ping Ping handles that is also very real. She doesn't want to hear it. She avoids it. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. All that's great. And then they undercut it by having Ping Ping like put a hit out on Kim. It's insane. That is actually what happens. Like it, The most frustrating thing to talk about with this show is that everything we're describing happened as we're describing it. The problem with The Shipper is while it's very easy to talk about the actions that transpired over the show and the expressed by the character reason for why they're doing what they're doing, the thematic implications of everything they're doing is actually incredibly disturbing. Like One of the big things we talk about in fandom sometimes is that projecting homosexuality on the boys is the way a lot of girls figure out their own queerness for themselves. And the show walks right up to this line by highlighting the romantic potential between Pan and her friend Soda, who spend way too much of their free time and their class time writing sexy fic about two boys like a year or two older than them, and then throws that idea away as if it were preposterous. That is so offensive. And it's weird in a show that features young gay love in it about girls who are obsessed with young gay love to do something that felt incredibly homophobic or in this case specifically lesbophobic the show in general feels homophobic and lesbophobic because in the end the only romantic relationship that actually gets to happen is the one between pan and ket who is Kim's brother. So of everything else, basically, Wei falls in love with Kim and Kim dies. They tease 
Pan and Soda, but it doesn't happen and they both end up with boys. It feels like it wanted to be clever and out-clevered itself, so to speak, to the point that it just got real stupid. You look at the shipper and you can see the points that it's hinting at, but it's almost like it's afraid to make the point because they're worried that the audience that they're hoping funds this project doesn't turn on them by realizing that they're being maybe shited for how they behave. And it ends up becoming a show fundamentally about nothing that ends on an insane level of queer trauma that it somehow writes off as useful because it helped a straight girl figure out that she should maybe fuck her best friend who's hung around her writing sexy fic about his brother, but she didn't know it was his brother for the last year or two. But also she's now projecting her intense shipping desires onto gun and off who randomly show up in the final six minutes. I deserved better than this. Let's just talk about the absolute. I mean, it sounds so weird to say that this is the absolute wildest moments of the show. I mean, if we went through all the wild moments of the show, it's probably not the absolute wildest, but it's the one that felt probably the wildest and most offensive in the end. And that was the kiss. Fuck, here we go. At the end, Pan is now trying to get back into her body after a series of Uno reverses in the last two episodes that just were exhausting and upsetting. Now Pan is trying to get back into her body before it dies. And the way that she gets back into her body is supposed to be a true love kiss. Pan is still in first body at this point in time, and they decide that the true love must be Kim's brother, Ket. It's two boys kissing, but it's somehow still homophobic. (laughs) So, oh my god. So, Pan's gotta have a true love's kiss. So, Pan calls Soda while she's running to tell Ket that if he likes her, he should come and kiss her in the form of his brother's body, which he does. I'm telling you guys, what I'm saying is exactly what happened. I just hate the show for having Omen first kiss, having it be one of the weakest kisses either of these boys has ever given, and then immediately cutting to a funeral afterwards. Because first character died. Technically, first character died at the beginning of the show. And we only get to dealing with that at the end of the show. And in between, we just get a bunch of stuff. And I mean, we haven't even gotten to the family drama. Because aside from everything else that's happening... Kim and Ket live alone while their parents are in another country. And it seems like Kim and Ket kind of hate each other. And so there's a whole family drama happening with Pan in Kim's body where Ket is coming to peace of some kind with his relationship with his brother and then has to also deal with the fact that actually his brother is dead and then has to shepherd his parents through that 
So there's that. And then we randomly find out somewhere in the middle of the show that Pan is actually growing up being raised by her stepfather because her mom died. And her stepfather is constantly being encouraged by the people around him to ditch her because he doesn't have any responsibility to her. But she thinks of him as her dad. Again, all on paper, compelling stuff. But the way that it's dealt with in the show, it just, it all feels like a bridge too far. The show wants you to think about a lot of really interesting ideas and such, but it doesn't want to come forward and say them itself. Like it's always tiptoeing up to something and then peeking in the room and then walking away from it. It's one of the most frustrating experiences I've had as a viewer in a really long time. The show feels intellectually dishonest. That's probably the best way to describe it. This show has roughly 800 convictions and the courage of none of them. It feels so dishonest intellectually. It feels offensive. It feels rude. I was so angry at the end of episode nine in a way I have not felt since the final episodes of History 3 Make Our Days Count. I don't like moments that should be joyous for queer people being snatched from them to make some sort of cute point in a narrative to seem somehow better than the audience. And it really, really pissed me off. In this particular instance, it's when Wei confesses his feelings to Kim and Pan goes into what she knows is going to be a confession, believing this is somehow for her, which is deluded. And then she gets upset during the confession that the confession to the boy whose body she's in is being given to the boy whose body she's in and not to her, the shipper. After earlier shiting the girl she should be developing a lesbian romance with for deciding to project that onto the boy whose body she's in because she misunderstands their dynamic as Kim actually flirting with her. And I was enraged by this show taking a gay moment from a gay boy and then also running away from a lesbian moment and having the character just be completely out of touch about it. Which I guess is maybe the point about Shippers, but not the point the show really wants to land on. And it's final messaging. The last, like, ten-odd minutes is so deeply disturbing that I have not recovered. So, as we've described here, Kim and Wei are the boys that these girls are projecting all their shipping nonsense onto. We learn that these boys are actually involved in a fairly interesting and complicated gay love story that I actually think would have made for a really compelling story on its own, but I digress. And then Kim is dead, 
And so we have to process that particular fact. And these girls believe that the best way they can honor the two boys who they never understood is to keep writing deluded fic about them. And I have not been this disgusted in a really long time. And it's presented as valedictory somehow. Right. Like they have way cry like weird tears of thanks. I don't know what the hell happened here. And maybe because we can reflect on this now three three to four years later, maybe this is why they put Alf in charge of all the queer shit after this. Because this was a bridge way too fucking far. At one point toward the end of our watch, I remember just saying out loud, I fucking hate this. <laughs> to bed. And I think I kept that mantra up. Varying versions of I fucking hate this and I'm so pissed for probably the last entire episode and a half of this show. Before that, we were making jokes about psychic damage and eldritch horror. More and more jokes as the show went on because we were absolutely taking psychic damage watching the show. The show was an eldritch horror. I just did not realize how much of an eldritch fucking horror that it was. <sighs> Listen, it's over. We've learned our lesson. We're never doing something like this again. We have no promises to you all about other things we want to catch up on right now. Because, goddamn, do we need a break. <laughs> if we skipped it, we were correct. And we will not be second-guessing ourselves ever again. I think that's going to be the rule. If there is something that we both skipped, it was for a reason. And we should never watch it. Like, it's one thing for us to, like, individually like something and recommend it to each other. But I think if there's something that we both skipped, I think that's the new the new catch-up rule. If we both skipped it, it's staying skipped. So it is written, so it shall be. I don't really have a lot of positive things to say. Like, I think the set design was cool. I think the production design was fine. I think overall the performances are strong. The GMMTV talent is consistently solid at the level we expect of them. I don't think anyone else at GMMTV at the time, at least could have done what first was asked to do in this character or characters. He's playing technically two. This is purely a writing fail. There's nothing else that I can point to that is wrong here. This is a hundred percent writing fail. So the shipper was bad and wrong and offensive and evil. We will not be taking further questions about this show. We have said all that I want to say about this show, and I will not be referring to it going forward. We all deserved better than this. I know there are those of you out there who love it. I'm sorry. I'm not one of you. And I am not willing to discuss it at all. I've said my piece and counted to three. Amen and hallelujah. Moving on. 
So what are we going to catch up on in the summer and talk about in the fall? Well, for me, I will finally be getting past my weird reaction to the uncanny valley effect that I get from watching the face smoothing filters on this show. And I am going to watch Light on Me. Good. Ben has been recommending this to me. He recently rewatched it and says that it holds up. Everybody loves this show. I've always intended to watch it, but I could not get past the skin smoothing filter. It makes everybody look like a weird robot. It's just unsettling. I am going to fight through my horror of it to actually watch the show. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And I'm going to talk about it when we when we come down to the fall. So look out for that discussion in October. Ben, what are you going to watch over the summer? Oh, so one of our recent pickups, who's been a delight, has watched so many things that I've recommended that I gave her a coupon. Which she cashed in on Coffee Prince, which I am currently watching. And Nini has also convinced me to watch Mama Gogo. I originally skipped Mama Gogo because I had watched Friend Zone and I had watched Friend Zone 2 Dangerous Area. And I just wasn't in the mood for JoJo. Doing big cast, obnoxious, soap opera level drama. And so I just skipped Mama Gogo at the time. We're about to watch Only Friends in probably the next one to three months, maybe. I will watch Mama Gogo in preparation for more of JoJo's oeuvre. And then I guess we'll talk about both of those. I think you're going to enjoy Mama Gogo, though. It's not gay, but it feels gay. I have watched JoJo's work. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're going to have a good time with it. So that's what we're going to be catching up on over the summer and talking about in our catch-up corner in October. So look out for that. So in keeping with our mission to watch things that are queer adjacent, queer-ish, as well as queer things, Ben and I both watched over the spring Watashi Tooto Tooto no Kareshi, Me, My Husband, and My Husband's Boyfriend. Ben, what is this about? A mess. Me, My Husband, and My Husband's Boyfriend is about a Japanese high school teacher who is sexually unfulfilled in her five-year marriage, despite having an otherwise devoted and caring partner, who then discovers that her husband, on their anniversary, is making out with some guy right outside their door. In the process of trying to cope with this and deal with this, they end up attempting to form a poly triad with this guy who her husband is seeing, who turns out to be 
her high school student, who is an adult now, he also had feelings for her. And so they end up in this complicated situation where everyone's trying to take care of everyone, and it's a little bit of a hot mess. The show ends up asking for people to interrogate what their own relationships mean for them, though it ends on a somewhat ambiguous note for our trio. There's a lot to unpack along the way there, but the broad strokes is a teacher finds out that her husband is cheating on her with a man, and she decides that they're going to try and make this trio work. Complications ensue. Complications ensue is putting it mildly. I feel muddled about this show, but the show is also pretty muddled, I think. It feels like they were trying to do something. I'm not sure it got all the way there. It did for me! (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it did for the audience that they were aiming it towards, which is obviously their local audience in Japan. And sad gay artsy boys like me. I'm really curious as to how this was received inside of Japan. Japan's been doing these shows where they try to marry the individual instincts that are related to identity and specifically queer and queer adjacent, I guess, identities. They're trying to marry that to the collectivist culture. So they're trying to put these shows in front of people like, this is maybe seem a little bit strange to you, but look at how happy everybody is. Isn't it most important that people are happy? And this one, I think from what I got from it, it seems like it didn't know exactly what it wanted to say about polyamory. There's a polyamorous character who is Shuye, who is the husband's boyfriend who is also in love with the wife but the other characters aren't poly but they're still trying to make a poly relationship work it's so much they're trying to stuff so much into the show and i'm not sure that it entirely works for me ben has other ideas they're not poly to start but no one is really except for characters like shue And I think that's why I like it. The big thing about being queer is you have to decide what relationships are going to be for yourself. You have to figure out what friendship, romance, and intimacy are going to be for you one person at a time. The etiquette rules of cis-heteronormativity do not apply to you. And so what works for me in this is most of the people who walked into this story were not poly, but they did care about the people involved. Was being a poly triad the right solution for them? Absolutely not. But at the core, you have two people trying to juggle a complicated sense of duty to each other while also wanting different things from each other and maybe other people and having to reconcile what all of those things were going to be for each other because they also wanted to honor the vows and choices they made to commit to each other under the previous structures before they got into this. 
So, no, Yuki and Misaki are not poly, really, in going into this. But opening themselves up to the idea that the way they understand love might not be concrete enables them to find something that puts them maybe on the path to actually being comfortable and cared for and properly caring to the people that they value. I would rock with that except for one very important thing. Yes, they're still working it out at the end. The show does end ambiguously. But the overwhelming feeling I get at the end is not a feeling of hope. It's not a feeling that they are going to work it out, that they're working through it and they're going to get to the place because I still don't feel like they are being honest with themselves entirely about what they want. For example, Misaki, she wants sex. And what she ends up with in the poly relationship and even in sort of a wider polycule that she's decided that she's putting together None of it nets her the sex that she wants, but she has talked herself into it as being right for her while it still doesn't give her what she wants. And I think it's very similar to Yuki. Yuki wants to be in a gay relationship. He wants to be in a gay monogamous relationship and the polycule doesn't give him that either. So it feels like they're not even working towards the things that they want, that they've decided on this as a solution, but it doesn't actually solve anything for them. The reason why it doesn't bother me at the end is I don't need the confirmation. They want you to think about it. It's not about whether or not this polycule works. It's a question of, have your thoughts about polyamory changed from spending five hours with these characters? So the ambiguity at the end is totally fine for me because you're allowed to project what you hope for onto them. And the question is whether or not you can reconcile what version of their lives looks like. It's the thinking about it that's important for them. I totally see your kind of hopeless read on the situation, but it doesn't bother me because they lean into ambiguity at the end. And so you're allowed to project onto it what you maybe want for yourself or for those characters. I do agree with you that like Misaki wants sex and they don't confirm her getting sex on screen, but they confirm her taking charge of her life, which to me is at the core of her lack of sex. It's not even for me that they don't show her getting sex on screen. It's not like that. It's more about her mindset about it. Instead of that remaining part of her mindset, the fact that she wants sex, by the end, she's completely put that thought aside, it feels like. I think it's implied that her desire for sex is also tied up in her notions of the kind of family they're supposed to have. I'm not sure I agree with you there. Because it's one thing to feel like you should be having sex and another thing to want sex. And I feel like Misaki wants sex. There is an argument to be made there about doing the things that you're expected to do and not doing the things that you're expected to do. Like, I fully see where the show is going with that, with the character of the other teacher. I think it's Mizumi. 
the fact that Misaki is not doing what Mizumi thinks that she should do. So Mizumi inserts herself into the situation and causes a problem. She's trying to fix it because she thinks that Misaki is too weak or too something to do the things that she should be doing when it's really that Misaki doesn't agree that that's necessarily what she should be doing. I get that part. I'm down with what they're trying to do there. But I didn't get the sense that she wanted to have sex because she thought it's something that she should do. It felt like it was something that she herself wanted and she wasn't getting. Maybe I'm getting too involved in the sex of it. Maybe that wasn't the intention. They leave who she inevitably chooses to bang it out with ambiguous and up to the audience because for them to confirm it in any sort of way, I think lead to too narrow a read on polyamory itself. So the idea that they're trying to get across is that this is not about sex. Polyamory is not a sex thing. Correct. I can accept that take in terms of what they're trying to put in front of their audience. Both of them want sex. Like Yuki wants sex too when it comes to Shuhei. But like he's unsatisfied because he can't enjoy it openly the way he realizes he wants to and needs to. So much of this is about them all having to let go of their preconceptions about what their lives should look like. And so like the final scene of the three of them like seeking each other out at night and then just being happy to see each other works for me. Because it feels like they see each other. And that's enough for me. Like, I don't have to understand it to get that whatever they found, it works for them. That's how I feel about every polycule I've ever met. I don't always get it, but everybody involved seems all right. Their relationship is not about me. If they say they're happy, I just accept that and move along. I'll take that away and think about that. But the overall feel of the show is that it definitely had ideas that it wanted to get across. It had an audience that it was talking to. I think that maybe I wasn't the audience, and that is part of my ambivalent feelings about the show. So for me, it lands on good, obviously as a point of view, obviously as a story it wants to tell, but it's not for me, and that's fine. I gave this a nine because I really engaged with all the ideas the whole way through, and I was really gripped by the whole of it. I liked how so much of it ends up being about Misaki having to defend her family from herself, from her co-worker, and I like that she's consistently fighting for the boys specifically, and that she cares about them. Ben gives it a nine. I, on quality, give it a nine and a half. Ooh, look at you. Like I said, it is a good, objectively good show. I'm just not the audience for it. And we're back. Now that we've finished catching up on all of the shows, good and bad, <laughs> finally, 
finally time for the spring roundup. <laughs> this week, we have our first guest on the conversation. We have brought my best friend, David, onto the conversation. David, say hello to the people. Hey, y'all. Okay. <laughs> Hi, David. I'm so excited to have you with us. I am too. <laughs> I remember saying to Ben, like, probably around the time the first voice note hit the chat, like, David has to come on the show. So I am very glad that we were able to make it work. I love that. He was telling me that people wanted to hear me. And I'm like, look, there are too many people who tell me to shut up. I love this. (laughs) (laughs) That will never be a problem over on this side. David talking again. (laughs) (laughs) Never shut up. I beg you. (laughs) All right. All right. So David, tell us about you. Tell us about how you even got into BL. Tell us a little bit about the David story. Um, whew, okay. so I'll start from the BL angle. I got into BL because of Ben. I don't know if he's ever told anyone this story, but me and Ben have two very different takes on Love of Siam. He is not to bring it up in my presence. I feel tricked and deceived. But because of Love of Siam, I didn't even realize that BL was a category. And Ben tried to initially get me into it. But I got really sick for a while, and I wasn't watching with him. And then I started getting over it. And the first BL that fell into my lap because I found it on YouTube was Until We Meet Again. And then it was a rabbit hole. I like finished that BL in like I think one sitting, which is insane. And I think in that sitting, I was texting Ben like, "Oh hell no." <laughs> <laughs> And then immediately went and watched another whole show back to back. And that was Love by Chance. Interesting. Finish that. That next (laughs) night. Yeah, girl, I know. I know. It was super annoying having David texting me about old shows. Because, like, we're neck deep in, like, 2021 (laughs) content. Like, that was a busy year. Like, there was a week at one point we had 16 shows to watch. And David's like, so this show in 2018, I really want to talk about it. I was also watching all the current stuff. Yeah, that was a lot. I was. Like, I, I think at least six, seven hours a day for a while it was BL. According to David's MDL, he's basically current on all of the BL. Yeah. There's maybe like four or five recent ones that I haven't watched. And two of those, I was directly told by someone, you were not missing anything. Here's an interesting question, because you and I have been in the guts of queer cinema a long time. Prior to BL, what are some of your favorite gay movies that you remember? Now, of course, he knows this is loaded, because I'm always going to say Big Eden. So good. One like touches my heart. When I'm depressed, I watch Big Eden. It's one of the few times where I've been upset at the main queer character almost the entire movie henry has issues but big eden is a beautiful movie and then maybe after that beautiful thing to wong fu priscilla queen in the desert bound like water for chocolate another lesbian classic to elaborate on the love of siam conversation when we were first hanging out we watched love of siam 
And David and I were both deeply repulsed by what happened there, but we contextualized it in different ways. David was furious and was like, I never want to discuss this film ever again. And so David was not exactly primed for BL because he was so ambivalent about Thailand in particular. The big time gay things we watched between 2012 (gasps) and 2017-ish were Love of Siam, Bangkok Bangkok Love Love Story. Story. A horrible film. Horrible fucking film. The Blue Hour, a good film, but really unsettling. And How to Win at Checkers Every Time. Lord Jesus. So. Like, Thailand routinely came from my throat. And I had done nothing to it. Thailand routinely showed up at my front door with these movies like, come outside. We ain't going to jump you. And inevitably, I would open the door and get jumped. And I never learned my lesson. So it always be me leading them. They're like, hey, I got to And it's Ben. It's Ben. Yeah. No, it wasn't Ty. It was Ben standing outside with the movies. Come outside. You're going to get jumped. You said it last time. Girl, come on. Stop talking about old shit. I like the queer <laughs> angst films. David does not. Yeah, so back I, I, to BL. Back to BL. For funsies, how about you tell the people of the podcast who some of your favorite boys are? Oh, and Fluke. She is a my blue girly. Oh, uh, I, I really am. Earth. Pirapet. I love him. Why did you whisper it like that? If you hear this, Earth, my one true love. <laughs> My current husband, I love him. He is a placeholder for you. I just want you to know he can be gone tomorrow. Babe. Like, it ain't nothing. Earth, what do you need? Like, I got you. What do you need, Daddy? You need a boat? I heard the F at the end of Earth right there, and I was like, I feel you. I completely understand where you're coming from in this moment. Not my particular ministry, but I feel you. <laughs> yeah. I, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have to constantly deal with Ben's malcontent. So thank you for acknowledging me and Earth. Back up David's Earth girly bona fides. David has not seen Waterboy because I refuse to let David suffer that loss. But. David saw Earth for all of two minutes in Love by Chance, and he's calling me. Who is this man? I, I need to know who this man is immediately. I He came on the screen. I was like, and that's it. Yep. Right there. Officially sprung. Right there. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. It, yeah, Earth. Earth. That's all I got to say. Earth. That man. Lord. David has an appreciation for what he calls the big talls in yeah, BL. I love the big talls. Fair. You know how I feel about a big tall. I mean, you and Nini can hang out together yes, and talk about let me Mantri Sanu. And- man. Ooh. Girl, not man. Oh my girl. Man is correct. Never has a name so encapsulated a being. Man and a tree in the same Girl. place. <laughs> Man, tree, mountain, stud. I mean, look. 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 Man, man did the job that he was sent here to do. God bless him. May Buddha protect him. Like, yes! <laughs> okay, so we've got the shows. We've got the boys. Let's dive into the season. Talk to me about how you felt about the spring. All the 
shows we've been watching over the last few months. So I think I've said this to Ben before. I felt that this season was probably the one of the most extremes. Like there were a few things that were mm, misses kind of, mm. but for the most part, we had duds and bangers. And the bangers made the duds and the misses that much worse. We had Eight Cents, Bed Friend, Our Dining Table, Jack of Frost. And everything else was okay, but those are all 10 and they were bangers. And it just made everything. How dare you forget La Pluie. I will beat you. Oh, up I'm, right now. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, sir. I'm. <laughs> you're right. I'm. I'm. I'm so sorry, sir. La Pluie. He's right. That was wrong. I do deserve the slap down that I just received. He sat in my house. In his house. Eleven in, of twelve of these played episodes. in his face, oh, y'all. 12 of 12. <laughs> played in this man's face. In his face, like he didn't know who it was. I'm sorry, La Pluie there were a lot of good ones and i think that's why there were so many many more bad ones in particular the most glaring combination is the shows that were basically the same show but one was clearly better step by step boss and a babe look boss and a babe i get what they were trying to do but the whole show was a massive misstep and it was so much more obvious because right after boss and a babe we got step by step, which fumbled maybe a couple of times. It fumbled a little, but it stuck the fucking landing. I think oh, here Ben is going to fight you. But David, I am on your side. I heard the mm. she has talked to me about this before. I actually completely agree with what I know she's going to say. But I still think they stuck the landing in a way that everyone else fumbled and fell on their fucking face. Mm. David, <laughs> you, me, you can't see me now, but we are shaking hands. We are shaking yeah. hands. We are. I, I concur. And Thank I'm you. I'm going to have a little sip while y'all do that. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a bunch of shows that really stood out for you. Like looking over your list, like you already mentioned, like Our Dating Sim, Our Dining Table, Step by Step, La Pluie, Bed Friend. Looking at the rest of the stuff, what did you genuinely enjoy, but you feel like you have to look at your list to remember that show? Oh, that's a good one. I really enjoy, but I have to look at the list to remember it. Our Dating Sim. I liked it, but it would never be in the forefront of my mind. But if you bought it up and I saw it in front of me, it was like, I like that. I felt during the show, I was like, oh, this is cute. That's a really good question. Like, you liked it, but you need to, like, be reminded of it. And that would be... Yeah, Our Dating Sim, Jack of Frost. God bless it. I want to say Naked Dining, but Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> they tr- Girl, they're my top nominee for Y'all Tried It. <laughs> David has declared a new entrant into Girl You Tried. I'm putting it in the notes. What about you, Ben? What's the one or two that you liked, but to actually remember it, you got to look at the list. It's probably Unintentional Love Story and Love Mate. These are both shows that I think I gave nines to and I would earnestly recommend, but I don't think I would independently bring them up in conversation as like BL essentials that I really want someone else to watch. I agree with those, particularly 
Love Mate. Like, I would put Love Tractor on that list. I watched Love Mate and Love Tractor after the fact, which, by the way, the Koreans have got to get better at naming these shows. Love Tractor's a good one, too. Like, Love Tractor was actually good. Love Tractor was good. it feels like we missed it. There was a point where they could have done some stuff faster and had these boys suck in face quicker. I'm gonna let it be what it was. It was cute, but like I said, it's on the list for me. Mm-hmm. I liked it, but it never comes to the forefront of my mind. I feel like that's fair for both Love Made and Love Tractor. What else did we watch that I have to remind myself that we watched? There were quite a few flops. We did not even acknowledge this season. We're not talking about <laughs> the flops. David's going on a face journey right now like because my he whole, watched so many of them. There were so many. Like, I've seen fish dumped on the bottom of a boat that flop less than some of this stuff. Oh my god. Fish <laughs> gasping for air, trying to get back into the sea. Release me, old man, and I shall grant you three wishes. <laughs> some of this stuff was flippity floppity flooping all over the place. As I remind David about the trenches that I fought through for eight years of DL. Here he goes. Oh, all my life I had to fight. (laughs) Had to fight David. I had to fight Vicky. I had to fight ITE. I love Lord knows I do. (laughs) I did have to fight WeTV though. Real shit. (laughs) Before we get into some of the cerebral questions about this season, I have one more sort of half fun question to sort of ease us there. Of the programs that you enjoyed, which actor pairs did you enjoy working together the most just in the work, not with all of the fan shit around it? Bedfriend. What about Nett and James really stuck out for you? The material they were handling, because we can talk about all the high heat stuff, whatever. They were great. Rarely has two people had that kind of sexual chemistry. But the trigger warning, the sexual assault thing and how at some point you realize even though he has not told him what happened to him he knows and how he is respecting his boundaries and that's coming into the story and they're talking about without talking about how someone deals with that trauma for the rest of their life and how it can't help but inform every decision you make and how you respond to things And I do not think that any other pair could have pulled that off in the same way that Nett and James did. As a matter of fact, if you had asked me if I thought they could do it, I probably would have said no. Judging on their previous work, I would not have expected that. On their previous work, but they were both fantastic. Bye, you, Nini. My couple of the season, it's got to be man and band man. I'm not even mad. I think Man and Ben did a really good job with Step by Step. I'm not even mad. Even though that boy has the ugliest crying face, God bless him. Ben, I love Ben to death, but like his crying face makes me so angry. <laughs> I'm like, please teach this child how to cry without scrunching up his mouth like that. I love him, though. And how tall is Man? 6'9 or something? I don't know. It's a lot, though. Man was on point. Everything he put on screen was on point, and Ben just followed along, I think. I think they did really well. I would like to say, too, I don't think we've ever seen a pursuer really be emotional. 
Like, if you think about it, how many times have we seen the guy going after the person really have a breakdown and cry? There might be some tears. They're upset. They're throwing stuff. But he broke down. He was crying in his baby brother's lap. His brother, he was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And he delivered that. It was completely believable. Like, I watched that scene five times. He just loses it. It was completely believable. He was amazing. And I was just like, how dare you hurt my Redwood? The thing that struck me about that scene was that man couldn't actually produce tears, but somehow that scene is like, he's bawling. There are no tears, and I'm still feeling everything that he's feeling because just the sound of his voice, everything. It was working, and this motherfucker couldn't cry. I was like, how dare you? My couple of this season is Title MP from La Pluie. I knew you were going there. Oh, girl, you knew what this was. We did not simp hard enough for Title during the La Pluie <laughs> discussion. That boy is beautiful. He has an incredible smile. Like They're like, I think Ty likes this boy too. And I'm like, that's just Title. He just gives everybody eye every time he looks at them. He breaks people. It's the eyes of Kid Midas shit going on here. You can't be looking at everybody like that, because even I was like, he's a whore. <laughs> you don't look at everybody like that. Did I not say that Ty is an alley cat? Like, from jump. <laughs> and you were right. You were a prophet. You led the march, because he's a whore. And he bit that man. And then he bit him. Matt, like, no. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. We just did not ventilate this enough, because I just, like, uploaded the Adult Swim episode today, which means I just listened to it again. And I'm sorry, we didn't talk enough about how Ty bit that man. We just didn't. He bit a grown man and then had the nerve to get mad because the man got mad because you bit him. Do we remember what he said right today? You made me. Sir, that is inappropriate in every way, shape, and form that matters. You can't just be biting people. Do I want to sometimes walk around and bite people? Yes, because listeners, some people just deserve to get bit. We all know it. We all secretly think it. Like, don't play. Don't play. Lie to God. Don't lie to me. Read your scripture. It's above me. All I'm saying, what was I saying? He's a whore. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I lost the thread at some point. They don't have easy characters to portray. Title has to be a likable enough protagonist for people to project onto him before they recognize that he's been in the wrong the entire time. And then he has to be wrong in a way that also makes you want to root for him to get better. And that's super oh, difficult. I didn't think about it like that. And P has a difficult character because he has to be all of these things without people asking any questions about his biography. Like he has to be a perfect romantic interest but not in a way that's distracting. P has to portray Pat in such a way that we identify him as the ideal partner that Seng Tai has been looking for this whole time, but we need to not ask any questions about him. Like, where does his money come from? What's the deal with his people? What does he care about outside of Seng Tai and taking care of these animals and his friends? And P encompasses Pat in such a way that he feels like a complete person who has turned his interest towards Sengtai 
in a way that doesn't demand the audience ask any goddamn questions about him. Like for all the debating about Pat this whole season, nobody stopped to ask a damn question about how does this man's life even function, which I think is also great because it means everybody was caught up in Sengtai's bullshit the whole time. They give such legible performances over the course of the show. There's never a moment where you're confused about what Sengtai or Pat is feeling and why they're feeling it. So we talked about the actors. We loved Nett and James this season. We loved Man and Ben. We loved Title and P. Who else stood out this season? Ichiman and Okai. Also, Suzuki Kosuke and Honda Kiyoya. The Japanese BLs we gave tens to stellar performances. Nobody has looked like such a sap more than Ijima in a long time, and that was so lovely to watch. Let's get into the cerebral. We talked a little bit in the Adult Swim episode about how intellectually demanding this season felt. David, since you've been in a rapid catch-up with BL for the last two years, we talked about how emotional the winter felt with Moonlight Chicken, It's a Kushikari 2, The Warp Effect, My School President, back Never to Let Me back Go. Back to back to back bangers. I don't even know if we've had a season where there were that many back to back to back bangers. Airing concurrently? No, that was a first. However, this particular season, as you said, there were really good shows and not so great shows. How do you feel about how much the shows of this particular season required us to lean in and pay attention to them and talk about them and acknowledge what was being said? I think the medium is evolving. We're having to lean in more because some shows want us to. They're clearly writing this. They're clearly directing this. They're clearly leading us somewhere. We want want you to think about this. It's not all cutesy. And I think that is a maturing of the genre itself. Nina, you have any thoughts about the cerebral nature of this season you want to get out for the lanyard? I talked a little bit about this in the Adult Swim episode, but my brain, she'd be tired. My brain be so tired, like to the point where over the summer, I'm just watching trash, lighthearted fluff and... <laughs> One or two things that make me think a little bit more, but mostly just, yeah, I don't want to think for the next little bit. Trash is where it's at. Yup. I'm a Thailand girly. I go up for the Thai shows most of the time. And every big name in Thailand gave me something to look at, more or less, this season. And it was all, like, if not the best, it was instructive. It was interesting. It made me think. So... I generally had a good time, but she tired. I almost want to say this is where the genre peaks for me. Like I've been wondering what the peak of BL was going to look like for a while. There was a lot of really heavy stuff this season about what queer people are living with and experiencing. And I am curious where BL goes after this. So, before we talk about where BL is going next, we've been building towards this all season. It's time to hand out Girl You Tried. 
David, this is your first time on the podcast with us. During the Vibe Awards, we handed out an award for a show that, boy, there were some ideas. There were some performances. They were not in the same meeting. <laughs> At all. The focus group saw something different. Um, people watched a different show. Some notes got jumbled up. Uh the, it, clearly, the director was asleep or just not paying attention. Things happened. Nene, please introduce our contestants. For those of you who might be new to us, Girl You Tried is an award that we give out every season for a good concept that struggled with its execution. So our four nominees, four people, four nominees for Girl You Tried this season are... Late Entry, Naked Dining, Original Entry, A Shoulder to Cry On, and Along the Way Entries, A Boss and a Babe, and Step by Step. You've heard us talk about all of these shows across the season, so we're not going to dive too deep. Y'all will have heard the problems that we had with the shows. David, aside from Naked Dining, which is the one you put on the list, maybe tell the people why you think Ben and I put specific shows on the list. To be fair, I did not watch a show to cry on because Ben dogged that show out so bad, I wasn't even <laughs> going to give it the time of day. So um, I can't vote on a show to cry on. Naked Dining takes it home for me because they were both annoying. They both were getting on my nerves. And this weird thing that they love doing in Japan, where people take off for prolonged periods of time and don't talk to one another, is obnoxious. There were all these weird near misses, and the food was supposed to be more central, but it really wasn't. Some things just didn't make sense, and no one would explain it. Normally, that's okay. But there are things that are central to the story that just didn't make sense. How did they try? What they tried for was cute little cooking show with a side of romance. What they got was day-old discounted bread. They wasted my time <laughs> and my soul. It was a waste. If we're taking it down to brass sacks, they tried something. I don't know what it may have been. Maybe they were trying to do a cooking show. Maybe they were trying to do a show about kitchen safety and why you shouldn't be in your kitchen naked. I really don't know what they were trying to do. Nini, we've talked about a lot of these shows a lot. Who is your winner for Girl You Tried for this season? Well, for me, it's always going to be who with like some nips, some tucks, some tweaks would have been a 10 for me. That's my criterion. And for me, that show is Step by Step. Because Step by Step was like, uh, I think I ended up giving it like a 9. Yeah, you gave it a 9. Yes, I did. I truly think that with a couple of nips and tucks and tweaks, like Step by Step could have been a 10 show for me. I just enjoyed whatever T was doing. I was into the ideas that he was playing with. You know, I'm a vibesy bitch. And I was feeling the vibe of step by step. But it needed some some tidying. 
it needed some cleaning up. Like I said, some nips, some tucks, and it would have been a 10 show for me. So yeah, step-by-step, step, that's my winner. How about you, Ben? I went back and listened to some of our stuff in preparation for the Girl You Tried Award. And I think the fact that we had a gaming company and a team of gamers and they never did anything with that as a potential crossover feels like a huge mist from the writing standpoint, which means that they were barely paying attention. That's a huge knock in the you're not really trying section of the board for me. And I think just listening back, the intensity with which I was criticizing step by step is basically the built in answer for me. I love T a lot as a creator, as a queer person, and I'm always rooting for him, but goddamn, does he make it hard sometimes? <laughs> ben said T's not one friend you have who's right, but damn, shut the fuck up. <laughs> Drink your juice, Shelby. Shit. <laughs> T really is. Girl, you should just sat there and ate your dinner. T really is that friend. <laughs> See? Just sit there. Just eat. Like, the reason why it's step-by-step step is, as an entertainer, T, I think, broke trust with his audience. And he really misfired there. Because like, there are so many good ideas in step-by-step. And he's got a really good eye as a director. He's a really legible storyteller, but he's got to figure out how to put these things together. He's got to figure out how to structure his episodes more effectively. And so for me, it ends up being step-by-step because I can feel the show that step-by-step wants to be more than the other shows on this list. Like Naked Dining doesn't know what it wants to be. A Shoulder to Cry On got edited to all hell because of the idols involved. And what the fuck was new even doing with a bunch of fucking gamers in a workplace BL anyway? So, it's step by step. All right. The dubious honor of Girl You Tried for spring 2023 with two thirds of the vote. <laughs> I amend my vote. You have talked me out of my vote. I, I will now amend my vote. Oh. Step by step. Clears the board. The whole panel. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be the only award show it ever sweeps. <laughs> so it's no unanimous. Minus ones across the board. All right, panel. Tens of chops. Nini? One chop. Two chops. Three fucking chops. <laughs> I don't see it. <laughs> Our final section, looking ahead. What do we have up next? Nini, you've got the list. Well, what are we watching right now? So let's start with that. So one of the things that we're watching now, oh, look, I'm just going to say it. We're watching Be My Favorite. I am on record on this podcast as saying that I had zero interest in watching Be My Favorite. Ben said he was going in hostile, which he did. We had to literally amend the name of our chat for the show, like as the show went on. What did it start as? Not our favorite. I was not watching at that point. It went from not our favorite to maybe it's good. 
to we're mad, this might be good. And then now our chat is just called, Ah, fine! (laughs) (laughs) So I slugged my way through the very first episode. And when he had said it was like the first time (laughs) in a long time that me and him have both been like, absolutely not. And then two weeks later, this bitch (laughs) goes... So be my favorite, and I turn aghast, of course, because <laughs> I thought not only had that ship sailed, but we waited until they got at the harbor and we sank it. <laughs> and I discover that homegirl down here is taking a sub to go look at its remains. <laughs> then, of course, because I'm like, no, this has got to be a complete disaster because there's no way this Miss Thing went back to a show. And now I'm sitting here like, ugh, okay. What else is on the, wow, are we actually watching this list? I know it's not hitting agenda. It is hitting agenda. I haven't watched it yet because I was going to let Ben watch it. I'm be like, if Ben hates it, I won't bother watching it. But I don't want to start watching this shit. And like it and have this bitch hate it and not have anybody to watch this show with. I don't hate it. I don't think I'm sold on it yet, but I don't hate it. Someone told me that they have definitely gotten better as acting now. Mm. One show under. Mm. No, not the both of you. Not the both of you. Not the both of you going. Like a starting up race car. I am so <laughs> mad that you both at the nearly a second apart. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? I wasn't going to watch it. Then I found out it was tea. And then I was like, well, shit, now I have to watch it because I am contractually obligated to watch everything that tea makes after Lovely Writer. Understood. This is giving me such lovely writer teas in some very specific ways, but it's too early to tell as yet. What are we, three in or two in? Three in. Yeah, it's too early to tell. Like, with tea, you gotta give it half the show. Because, like, when I think about lovely writer, like, around four is when it started turn, and by six, I was like, yeah, okay, in. With tea, he's a slow burn motherfucker. You just gotta give him time to get into it. So I am holding my thoughts on it so far but i am contractually obligated to watch it all the way through david and i caught up on laws of attraction this weekend it's a lot of fun we're having a great time i love him (laughs) talking about the insane lawyer (laughs) his level of outright ridiculous sissiness i live for it is walking gay chaos and I live for every moment he is on the screen and somehow each shirt got gayer like I don't know if he's having conversations with people in costuming or if he is like pointing at a random poor little assistant and going you I want you to go to a woman's blouse store and get the ugliest, most asymmetrical shirt you can. <laughs> and it better be champagne and you, color. 
You are to bring it back here. And I swear to God, if it's not Earth Tone or Champagne, I will beat you to within an inch of your life. Go do your job and get out of my face. He is giving me everything. Because look, girls, gays, and theys with guns, I'm here for. And when when he goes to that office to try to beat that boy up and he pulls out that gay ass little gun and goes, look, boo-boo, I'm going to put one in you one way or another. <laughs> I, I live. I live. I was resurrected. I had bronchitis and he cleared it up. It resurrected me. That whole scene healed me in body and spirit. I'm not going to even lie. So I am not watching this. I am waiting for somebody to tell me I must watch this. Oh, girl, you're not missing anything. Do not get us wrong. You are not missing cinema verite by any stretch of anyone's fucking imagination. But what I will tell you is that it's delightful. Also from Thailand, we are watching Be Mine Superstar. When I was talking earlier about a trash watch, this is what I was talking about. I have not started watching it because it was another one that I was kind of waiting to see what Ben was going to say. Be Mine Superstar is fine. It is very watchable. It isn't asking a lot of me right now. I'm having a good time with the performances overall. It is a low stakes watch for me. And I'm with Nini. Like, I'm having a great time with the big pieces. But I don't mind having just a very watchable show where it's very clear that John first are having a good time playing against their type. Okay. Okay, we're going to talk about the shit I care about. Now Ben wants to talk about Japan. Let's talk about Japan! Oh, here she go. <laughs> Buckle up, folks. It's going to be a bumpy night. Japan is currently airing two shows. And I am living my best life currently we have tokyo in april is which is the first new outing from mbs who have continued their drama shower rotation a lot of you may not be familiar with who mbs is but they are a japanese broadcasting network it is very very cool that mbs is invested in bl because they have produced some of the most important shit that's worked its way out of japan into the masses like some of the most famous anime comes from mbs very very cool that mbs is committing an entire second year to bl and they are continuing to get more gritty with the kinds of stories they're willing to tell along the way and i am really really impressed with tokyo in april is and I don't want to say anything else right now because we have a lot to unpack when we finally discuss it in the fall. Also, Minato's Laundromat 2 is airing right now. And while Nini may never watch Minato's Laundromat 2, so we'll probably not discuss it on this show except for me saying like it deserves a Vibe Award later. It is really cool that the showrunners opted to abandon the source material for the second season. From Korea, we have June and June right now. If you are kind of bougie about Korean production, I don't think you're going to enjoy this one. Finally, Taiwan is back. 
Oh my god. Taiwan is back and it's as cracked out as ever. Holy shit, Stay By My Side is so stupid. I love it so much. <laughs> we have needed a stupid BL for a while. And like, it's not stupid in the sense like the plotting is bad, the storytelling is bad, but it's just so silly. It's like, what if we take all these goofy BL tropes and just ramp that up to nine? Not ten, just nine. We don't know when Man Swang is going to come out. We're anticipating it, but we have no idea when it's going to release because they are doing the international festivals ter- circuit thing. A friend months. of mine got into a viewing of it. Apparently it's good. Sincerely good. There is something else coming out of Drama Shower that I don't have on the list because it only came up recently. My Personal Weatherman. That is what it's called. And the last one, which I am obligated to mention because my baby Nana Pat is in it. Nan is Banky and Saiparn from Midnight Museum. It's Moments and Memories. That looks like a goddamn mess. It looks exactly like the kind of trash that I need to watch. And it's only four episodes. I'm glad it's only four episodes. You can report back quickly because goddamn, I am not doing that one. Ben looks harranged and traumatized right now. (laughs) He's huddling on the floor in the corner, shaking his head. It's mess and lesbians. Oh, wait. There are lesbians in it? Yes. And here we are. We're there. That's it. That's it. I'm watching it. There we go. As we wrap this up, David, thank you for joining us as our very first guest on the conversation. Oh, God, this is awesome. I just want to let the people know that we've been here for two hours. I don't know how long the edit's going to be, but we've been having a good ass time. (laughs) I think we just take like the necessary stuff for the episode and then just release a bonus episode and just call it the David Cut. It's the David cut where I talk in a gravelly voice. David, since we are together, we have to do the thing for Nini because she's been waiting for it for a long time. Let's remind our listeners something very important. Dick is abundant. And low in value. Dick futures are not a safe investment. The NASDAQ is trending down. I'm making sure it's the NASDAQ. It's tri- I said NASDAQ and I almost killed Ben. The first time I said the NASDAQ is trending down and I almost killed one of my best friends. Uh, on that note, I think it's time to wrap. And we will bid you all adieu until the fall. David, Ben, say bye to the people. We out. Bye. Thank you guys for having me. It was great. Peace.